Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Disc Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very happy to have as my special guest, former radio executive, record company promoter, and music business veteran, Dave Chesney, affectionately known as The Ches. We'll be talking about his experience with the business of music, and we'll get some other insights as well about his multifaceted career. So stick around for a look inside the Canadian music scene of someone who's been there for many decades. Thanks for joining me today, Dave. How are you, my friend? I'm great, Dan. Nice to be with you. Well, yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. I uh, We've done a bunch of shows, and I had you in the back of my mind because I knew that you had a history in, well, radio and then uh, in the as a music business executive. And so I thought, well, you'd be a great guy to talk to because you've been around for, well, a few decades now. We won't say how many, but a lot. Yeah, it's uh, and, it's been a long and winding world, that's for sure. Good. Are you, uh, so are you a BC boy? Were you born in BC, a West Coaster? Born and raised on the West Coast up in beautiful Surrey, North Surrey, British Columbia. There you go. And then, uh, so your dad was Joe Chesney and uh, he was very well-known radio industry person who, I guess he worked at CKNW and CJOR and then had the country music station in Langley. Yes, he's kind of pioneered uh, country music uh, at CJOR, uh, the radio station. Virtually didn't have any ratings, uh, and he left CKNW when they found out that he was thinking of applying for his own radio station, ah. which he eventually did. But in the meantime, before he got his own license, uh, he went to work at CJOR and then did the afternoon show uh, with a radio program called Melody Ranch, which featured uh, the Nashville stars and uh, back in the day, any of the Local entertainers that had product uh, had released records. He also featured them. Then in the early sixties, nineteen sixty-two, he, after three two unsuccessful attempts, finally was granted a, a license for a radio station in Langley, which the call letters became CJJC and the JC, of course, for Joe Chesney. Mm-hmm. And uh, it became British Columbia's first twenty-four hour a day country music radio station. So that kind of is you know, the early part of, uh, you know, kind of how I, I guess she's kind of, you know, I, I never really thought about, uh, going into that industry, uh, as a, as a job to be, uh, per se, I was sort of imagine myself to be a school teacher. <laughs> I guess yeah. everybody has that one teacher for me. It was Mr. Black in grade, uh, uh, five in North Surrey. And I just, he made an incredible impression on me and I'm sure. Oh, neat many of other young boys up in Surrey. So I was always kind of in the back of my mind, which as we get later on in this, you'll find out it kind of sort of came to fruition. Your dad was very well known. He was very connected to the community. Why did they call him Uncle Joe? Good question. Um, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. know. I think it was just, uh, I think it was the, when he had the radio show at uh, CJOR, there was another gentleman, Vic Waters, who went by the name Cousin Jody. So I don't know okether okay. it was just Something that they, I don't know, maybe Uncle Dave making a Nashville star. I'm, I'm not really sure. It's a good question. Yeah, Funny, I never even bothered to ever ask him. <laughs> well, because like I said, he was very connected in the community. Was he part of the, the Langley City Council or anything? Was he involved in no, that No, he never, okay. never ever ran for a civic election. He did take okay. a stab at uh, provincial elections and ran for the NDP in okay. Langley, but uh, that was. I just uh, remember seeing his name. He was, he was, well, of course you do a lot of advertising with that. So, so the, the, the deal with you is you wanted to be more than just the boss's son. Like once you decided you were going to work there, you wanted to, you had aspirations of your own. Yeah, exactly. I mean, anybody that's, that's ever worked in that kind of environment, I think you have two options. Either you can just be the boss's kid and be a slacker, 
or you can uh, plow your row a little uh, straighter and tighter than anyone else. And it was a golden opportunity. CJJC was a great mixture of people whose careers were on the way up or on the way down. Oh, right. uh, okay. So it became like a modern, uh, when eventually WKRP came on the radio or on the television, I thought, oh my God, I could have written better <laughs> scripts than any of these people. <laughs> it was a really, it was really a cast of characters, but I was privileged enough to be mentored by some of the greats in the, in the radio industry. Yeah. And what a great time too. I often mention to my guests, you know, the 60s, 70s and 80s were really the golden decades of music and the buzz around it and radio stations were a big deal then, right? They had the tunes. There was nowhere yeah. else we could get them. I mean, I you know I can distinctly remember, you know, uh, getting out of school at three o'clock and and trying to get to the nearest radio to uh, perhaps hear the new Beatles single or something with yeah. Daryl B or Roy Hennessy or any one of those you know Big Daddy Dave McCormick. They were all, you know, people that later on in life became close personal friends. But I mean, they had the tunes. It was the only place you were going to get it, and it was AM radio to start with. And later on in life, it became FM radio. But you know, you just, uh, they had the tune, simple as that. Yeah. yeah. And I've often said that to young people. I'm sure you've shared much the same about how important radio was and, and especially AM radio in the early days. But as you say, once we moved to FM, you, you had the, the high fidelity, the stereo feed, and it just sounded great. That was a lot of life surrounded around the radio stations. Yes, uh, absolutely. Indeed. Yeah. And then, so I often ask my guests too, if, if, if your path was planned or happenstance or just an accident and, and with you, it seems from reading through yours, you sort of were an opportunist. You kind of took the opportunities that came along. Uh, yeah, I guess I would, uh, I would, I would say that, um, you know, the industry and I, I it's, you know, the, the entertainment music uh, recording Radio industry is, is is sort of all that I've ever known. Now, it could be the same in the trucking or the building industry, but you make friendships that last a lifetime and you find and you meet people that have a huge impact on your life. And for me, in the early days of working at my father's radio station, one of the jobs I had was music director. So uh, my job was to try to uh, build relationships with the record companies so that we could get product. Well, in those days, in the 60s, uh, record companies, had an absolutely no time, effort, or energy for uh, country music radio stations, as a matter mm. of fact. So we ended up getting the U.S. record service to get the records uh, that were coming out by the big stars in Nashville. Oh. But I did make a lasting relationship with a gentleman by the name of Frank Giliotti, who at that time worked for Columbia Records. Okay. And I still, uh, you know, all these years later, some 48 years, uh, I still call him my brother. We became very, very close, and it uh, ended up that... Uh, after I'd left my father's radio station, I opened up a secondhand store in uh, Aldergrove, and uh, Frank still used to come out and visit me. And one day he said, oh. you know, they're looking for a music director at uh, what in those days was LGFM was turning into FM 99. And he said, you know, would you be interested? And I said, uh, uh, yeah, I don't know whether I'd really enjoy the drive into Vancouver every day, but uh, yeah, let's uh, set, you know tell me who to call. And I went and set, uh, set up a meeting with, uh, at that time, uh, Roy Hennessy, the real Roy who was leaving AM radio. They just couldn't pay him any more money, but they had, they wanted to keep him within the Moffat family. So they said, Roy, why don't you, uh, take on the program duties of, uh, CKLG FM, uh, which he did. And he hired me as music director and promotions director. And wow. of course, then that, that just kind of, you know, then now I was working at the Big Smoke in Vancouver and dealing with a lot of all the major record labels across Canada because yeah. you're in kind of in a, in a position of power, uh, which never really went to my head. But uh, 
through that course, uh, after two years there, uh, I was approached by CBS Records. They were going, the, the business, as you stated, was, uh, you know, the, we're now looking at the late 70s, early 80s. The business was exploding, absolutely yeah. exploding. And it really had nothing to do with anything that we were doing. There's just this huge population called the baby boom that yeah. gave AM radio its giant numbers. And then it moved on. It's just like if you were fishing and looking at a, a sonar image, you'd see this huge bulge going from AM to FM. Hmm. And uh, as a result of that, once once that baby boomer moved into the FM era, we were, I mean, I don't know about you, but even I was going down to A&B Sound on a Friday afternoon <laughs> and picking up a half a dozen albums. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, that was a big deal. But, we just and, didn't think yeah. anything of it. I mean, Led Zeppelin 1 and 2 came out in the same year, in 68. Yeah, you know, we were, we were just yeah. like kids in a candy store. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't ha uh, relate that, oh, gee, we're sure living in a wonderful time. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a very good point because you just, there's all this music. A young person asked me one time, what was it about the seventies for you? And I said, well, every week there was this great music coming out. I just couldn't believe it. it was just I probably, and, and maybe you too, uh, I probably went, even before I was in the industry, probably I would say on average one, but more often than not, two shows uh, a week in Vancouver. Yeah. At the Agrodome and the gardens of the Pacific Coliseum. Well, the Pacific Coliseum wasn't there in those days, but yeah. Well, you were. Yeah, you you've seen many, many more shows than I have. But uh, well, just so just to backtrack a little bit, uh, three things I want to pick up on. One is um, Frank Giliotti. You pronounced it. Yep, Giliotti. You, yeah. So I did a, a show with him one time down at Jackie Cohen's place because he was very connected in the business and he got into some management later. I think he runs a winery now. Is that right? He does. He is yeah. in uh, North Vancouver, uh, California okay. cult classics. Nice. Yeah. But he was very well known and very well connected guy, but he kind of, I guess he drifted out of the music business, but, but at one time was he, did he not work back in Toronto? No, he always worked in Vancouver, okay. but after he left CBS records, um, we worked side by side, which was, you know, he was my main competition. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to learn a lot of the ropes uh, of the industry from Frank. But okay. when it came to, you know, those weekly ads, whether C-Fund, CKLG or LGFM or Rock 101 yeah. was going to add a record, I was in a fierce competition with him as much as I was with competing labels like uh, Capital, Warner Brothers. Right. So, yeah, uh, Frank, you know, I think Frank got to the point and by his own admission, he just kind of got burnt out and he ended up going, uh, uh, working in the Vancouver stock market and became okay. befriended Murray Pesham and ended up at uh, one point in time, uh, the president of the BC Lions. There you go. Very so cool. he's, he, he's had a pretty yeah. interesting career. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, so he was your connection to Fox, Is that right? He was indeed. Which, yeah. uh, if people are listening across Canada, Fox is, you know, was the flagship and probably still is to some people, the station in, in Vancouver. I mean, that was the place to be, right? That was a, It was a probably deal. one of the three, you know, probably Chum FM in Toronto, Shom FM in Montreal, and CKLG FM were the pioneers of, of that era of, uh, you know, FM rock yeah. in Canada, but that's for sure. Very cool. And then you mentioned Roy Hennessy and the, and the connection I have with him is that they used to do a show here on the West coast called talent breakthrough. And Roy Hennessy was the host of that show. Right. And so when I was 13, I auditioned for that and I was on that show and Roy Hennessy interviewed me <laughs> and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I'm just this, you know, teenage kid. Uh, playing guitar and singing, which I'd done since I was seven years old. And, and Roy was very, very gracious to me. So I always, I always had a, a deep respect for him and the way that he treated me. Yeah. Wonderful man. Yeah. And he's gone now, right? So lost him a couple of years ago. 
Yeah, yeah. okay, that's right. I did see that on, uh, yeah, well, very cool. So so your time at Seafox, so you, you get into Seafox and then uh, that must have been like a different universe for you. Uh, well, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't that, that really that big a difference than what I was doing out in Langley at, uh, my father's radio station. The, the job, the, the, the level of, and the importance of it may have been a little bit higher, but, uh, yeah. the machinations of the job were, were still very much the same. Okay. And you knew the business, so it wasn't, there was nothing surprising in that respect, I suppose. I don't know that anybody ever really knew the business. It was changing so fast, to be very honest. Uh, yeah. you know, it was, it was fluid to say the least. Yeah, but how about the jump from country to rock? What was the difference there? Um, well, I think the the big difference there was uh, rock artists were a little less approachable than country stars were. Hmm. Um, and even many years later, in the next phase when I worked with CBS, you know, the George Jones, the Merle Haggards, the Ricky Skaggs, I mean, I would work those shows at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre and see an artist like Merle Haggard after the show sit at the front of the stage. The lineup would stretch all the way out the QE theater into the lobby, and he would sit there patiently signing everybody's autograph wow. and giving them a Kodak moment. And you see people in the line, they'd get up and they'd go, Hey, Merle, Johnny here. Yeah, I met you a couple of years ago, and I brought my brother Larry out to meet you. Larry, I'd like you to meet Merle. You know, and the artists were so gracious. Uh, mm-hmm. That was probably the, the biggest difference with the rock stars. They kind of um, were elevated into a rarefied air, and some of them, uh, it went to their head. Not all of them. There was a lot of them that were very down to earth. But if I was to draw one one big difference between country and rock and roll is the country stars were very accessible. And I think to that extent, that's why there's a lot of all those old artists out there that are still touring to this day, haven't been on the radio in decades but they can still go out and do business because people will think that they, you know, my friend Farron Young or Ferlin Husky, I'm not even sure if they're still yep. alive. Sonny James, he's coming to town tonight. I got to go out and see him. So there's that, uh, you know, that bond. I mean, boy, yeah, it, no, it lasts a, a lifetime. Yeah, I appreciate the. I appreciate you saying that because, yeah, some of the rock stars were really aloof. I mean, a lot of that's been dropped nowadays. I would think because of the accessibility and Facebook and social media and everything. But but some of those artists were very aloof, and you, you couldn't get near them or or talk to them or anything. And then the country guys. I mean, if you're true to your craft, you're just a good old boy that wants to sing some songs. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, I'll bore you with a little bit of a story here that really struck home with me. One of the artists that uh, at a very young age, uh, you know, uh, my dad used to book when he was at CJOR. uh, He worked with a gentleman named Mooney Lynn, who was Loretta Lynn's husband. They lived in Custer, Washington. So we used to go down for dinner at Loretta and Mooney's house on a Sunday. And it kind of struck me strange that these people, this is kind of right where uh, that sissy Spacek movie, uh, Coal Miner's Daughter, started though they didn't identify they were leaving Washington State in Custer, Washington. Anyways, um, so it wasn't uncommon for them to come to for dinner at our place, or Buck Owens was another one that I remember from a very young age, and it wasn't even the Buckaroos. In those days, it was just Buck and Don Rich. Anyways, uh, I love the story about Buck uh, later in life, and this shows the accessibility, I think, in the heart of country music is he had a big uh, honky-tonk in Bakersfield, California, where his home was for years. I think it was called the Golden Palace. Anyways, if he was in town, he would turn up and play at the uh, the bar, kind of unannounced. And the Buckaroos were sort of the house band uh, when they weren't touring. Make a fast, long story short, 
uh, one night Buck came down, he was going to play and he was sitting there in the dressing room, said, I'm going to go get a bite to eat. There was a restaurant in the bar. And so he goes and gets a bite to eat and he comes back, he's sitting down. He said, you know what, boys, I think I'm going to go home. I just, I'm just not feeling very good. You know, some stomach's a little upset and I'm just not feeling very good. So they said, okay, no big deal, Buck. It's not advertised that you're going to be here tonight. So he's walking out across the parking lot and he was, uh, accosted by a couple who saw him and said, oh, Buck, it's so great, so great you're here tonight. You know, Mary and I, we saved our money all these years. We live up in Portland, Oregon, and we were really just so looking forward to seeing you tonight. Well, I think you know what happens here. Buck wow. goes back into the dressing room, and the guys are like, what's going on? He says, I, I can't go home now. A couple I just ran into in the parking lot, he related the story. Did the concert, left the, left the honky-tonk, drove home, walked through his front door, sat down in his favorite chair, died. Wow. That was the end of it. That was the end of his life. Wow. Yeah. What a story. Holy cow. Well, there you go. He was true, true, true to his, uh, to his roots right to the end. Yeah. And, and, and virtually every single one of them were. And, and I think that's yeah. why there's there, they had such long lasting careers. Uh, I mean, rock stars, uh, especially in today's world, you know, they, they seem disposable to me, but. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And and the thing is that the, the whole rock thing was about, you know, you have a certain time where you're a star. And that was the case, I think, for most of them. Some of them had longevity in their career, but a lot of them were just this meteoric rise. And then they just kind of faded away or went on their, their own way. Well, Whereas, again, again, yeah. you, you went through, you know, that era of in the seventies uh, and, and early eighties when you know, bands all across, uh, you know, uh, British Columbia, let's just take British Columbia. It was the same anywhere. They would tour the circuit. <clears throat> They'd yeah. play five or six nights a week, three yeah. sets a night, quite possibly host the jam session on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, I did all that. <laughs> but as a result of that, and I think you're an, on, uh, an honest byproduct of that, yeah. you learned the craft. Oh yeah. Nowadays, you know, uh, because there aren't those venues for, uh, performing, Bands get together and they rehearse maybe once a week or maybe once a month. I don't even know what their schedule would be. My point is, is if you only play tennis once a month, you'll never yeah. be a great tennis player. Yeah. No, you'll that's be, a good you'll, point. You, yeah. you may have enjoy, you'll enjoy playing tennis, um, but, yeah. you know, um, to, to hone your craft. And as I say, uh, I know a bit about your past is you, you really, that, that era really spawned a lot of great musicians. Well, yeah. And, and you make a good point because, you know, when I look at my career, I've done thousands and thousands of gigs. I couldn't even count them. And, and you have some people who are, you know, they go in the studio, record a song, but they may have only done a few hundred gigs in their whole life. Yeah. If, if even that, if even that, that's right. And, and you don't have time to kind of work things out. So you were at Seafox and then you applied for a job at uh, CBS Records. What was, what was the deal with that? Like, what was the lure there for you? Well, again, the, uh, we're going to have to come back to Frank Giliotti again. Mm, um, okay. well, he, he actually, uh, was, was when he found out that CBS Records was going to expand and end up because there was so, such a great roster that they, Frank couldn't possibly do all the work himself. So he said, you should throw your hat in the ring. And I had met, you know, a lot of the national people from the various labels. And I, and I really liked the record labels, uh, the, the roster that CBS had. We played a lot of it at Seafox. So, uh, yeah, I applied. And, uh, you know, 12 years later, uh, uh, there I was leaving CBS Records uh, when Sony oh. bought it. Uh, it was, yeah. The whole business changed when that happened. Uh, you know, and yeah. we, were, we were just about onto the crest 
of Napster and digital and everything. So everything was about to change. But when Sony bought CBS Records, the you know, we I think I remember sitting in my office one day and we had four or five of the top 10 records. And I thought, you know what? I don't even want to listen to any of these artists. I mean, hmm. not to begrudge the artists, but it wasn't my style of music anymore. I'd had the right. pleasure of working with the Stevie Rays and the Cheap Tricks and the Bostons and the Eddie Moneys and on and on. Yeah, and all of a sudden now we had you know uh, Gloria Estefan and the Sound Machine and 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 as I'm saying I'm not I don't want to be derogatory about any of that style of music, just wasn't my cup of tea. Right. So you know idealistically I said you know what I think it's time to move on. Yeah, but in those I- intervening years when you when you were there and you you must have had lots of great experiences and worked with lots of different artists. Oh yeah, yeah. And on on any given week, you could go from working with, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a heavy metal band like Crocus out of Germany to the two nights later to be at the Queen Elizabeth Theater with Yo Yo Ma, and the next night Ricky Skaggs, hmm. and then back to Cheap Trick Eddie Money. Uh, wow. you know? yeah. So it was it was it was it was all over the place. We had a big roster. We were you know we probably. Yeah. Next to Warner Brothers or equal to Warner Brothers, the two of us put together, we probably controlled 60% of the market at any given time. Yeah, it was a big deal. And, and of course, for the bands, getting a record deal and then getting that promotion and that machine behind you was pretty critical if you were going to make it anywhere in the business back then. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I never ever thought, I always thought of it as um, the business of music as opposed mm-hmm. to the music business. The music the music was the most key important part of the the whole equation. But at the same time, I've seen and I know of hundreds of artists that had incredible talent and incredible music, but they didn't have anybody taking care of the business. Yeah. And, you know, left brain, right brain kind of thing. Um, so I, you know, uh, and I think probably that's where we saw going into the nineties, where we saw the whole industry kind of break down. I mean, as soon as everybody, as soon as it went digital, the good news and the bad news were exactly the same. Everybody had a recording studio at home. So there was no natural uh, uh, filter system for you to be able to go into the recording studio. You just go downstairs and turn on your laptop and all of a sudden now you have a recording studio. Yeah. As you well know, in the day, bands used to have to work and save up money and try to get into a, a recording studio late at night try to do some little demo and then shop it to the record label and try to get a little development money. So it was a much different process. And I'm not saying one is any better than the other. It's just, that's the way things were different then. Well, yeah. And and again, a good point. So there was gatekeepers and you had, it was very expensive to record a world-class album. I suppose it still is. Oh, incredibly, incredibly expensive. But nowadays there's a saturation out there and and mediocrity is is the word of the day because most of the recordings, uh, you know, they're okay songs and they're okay recordings. They're not, you know, Asia by Steely Dan or, or, uh, you know, Supertramp albums that are recorded brilliantly and still sound great 50 years later. Yeah, no, you know, in my days at CBS, you know, young bands would come in and, you know, I was always uh, very uh, giving with uh, any direction I could possibly help them. So, you know, if I thought that they had some talent to get them a little further up the road, they were bar bands, most of them. And I'd say, well, you know, do you ever play any of your original stuff? Oh, no, we can't play our original stuff. The club owner tells us we can't. I'm just like, well, why would you even have to ask them? And, but <laughs> let me let me preface that with... If when you're playing all the covers and the dance floor is full and you play your song and it empties, 
I got to tell you right there and then that's the, 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 the most uh, direct form of uh, market testing that I can think of. And I remember seeing Loverboy. Let's just take them for example. I mean, you know, they, they were filling the honky tonks and playing the hell out of The Kid Is Hot Tonight in those songs. They never had a record deal. Those songs, songs weren't on the radio yet. Yeah, and they're great. They're great songs and just I'm a huge Loverboy fan, so... Well, you look at the body of the, you know, the history from back to the great Canadian river race and street hard. And again, they just, you know, all of the guys in that band had, had, had so much experience in playing live that, you know, when the time came, they were, they were more than ready to burn the house. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Good point. They're not an overnight success. I mean, Paul Dean had been in Scrubble O'Kane and had been in, in and out of several projects and is excellent. And, you know, I just, I loved it. when that album came out, I just thought it was the greatest you and a few so, million other people. Yes, there you go. So you worked with lots of different people. And, and then you were, how were you involved in Expo 86? You worked with a lot of artists there. Well, the Expo Theater was certainly, I mean, you know, I may as well have just, you know, <clears throat> had a tent and lived on the site because we had acts there on average, probably three nights a week. I mean, there was just a parade and again, just a wide variety of of artists that, uh, you know, uh, we invited the world and uh, boy, yeah. we sure had the music for them. So you got to, well, they had the budgets to bring in, like you had Jerry Lee Lewis there. Jerry Lee wasn't, uh, wasn't on CBS. He was Mercury, but, okay. um, I'm trying to think of who, who we might, I remember and going Stevie to the Ray Vaughan? Did you Stevie Ray, absolutely. Stevie Ray. And, uh, he played there by himself and then he also played there with his brother, uh, Jimmy Vaughn, the fabulous oh, cool. Thunderbirds, yeah. which was a great double bill. Um, nice. Yeah, no, I, I, I've almost lost track of how many artists we had, uh, as I say, yeah. from country to jazz to classical uh, to rock and roll. Yeah, and then George Jones, you... Uh... George Jones, there we go. There's the one, There's there's been two artists in my life that uh, when I met and worked with them, uh, I was absolutely speechless. One was Bruce Springsteen and one was George Jones. Okay. Uh, I had just, uh, I, I still rate him as one of the greatest white blues singers known to mankind. Yeah. And I think there's probably a lot of people that would agree with that. Uh, so yeah, when I met him, I was just, I was, I was in awe. I was yeah, just, you cool. know, I was, I was just a stuttering, stammering fool to be very honest with you. But he was pretty down to earth guy or no? Super down to earth, yeah. super down to earth. I, I kind of first started working with him and prom- promoting his shows up this way when he was, you know, in the, the heyday of the no-show Jones uh, era. Uh, matter of fact, he was <laughs> booked into the Cave Theater. I got a call from Stan Grazina, who uh, managed the Cave Supper Club downtown. He said, Dave, I got George Jones booked in for five nights. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> good luck. He said, no, 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 no. His agent assures me that he'll be here. And I said, well, okay. Um, so the day of the show, he called me up and said, look at the Jones boys are all here, but uh, George is flying in on a Learjet uh, from Texas. He's coming in. So can you go out and pick him up at the South, uh, South Airport of Vancouver International? I'm like, yeah, sure. No problem. So I go out and I go and check him with the tower. I said, you know, have you got a, a flight, uh, you know, left Dallas, Texas at such and such time, destination Vancouver? Yeah. It's due to arrive here in about an hour. I said, okay. Well, so we got some time. So I'm sitting out in the car and about an hour goes by. I go back in. I said, uh, uh, so what's, uh, how are we looking on that flight? Oh yeah, that flight. Yeah, no, it's turned and it's uh, now fly, fly, filed a new flight plan for Las Vegas. <laughs> oh, I'm like, oh no, that's not that's not going to be good. So I drive back downtown and walk into the cave. The place is packed to the rafters. It's the first night. 
Yeah. So I find Stan in his office. I said, Stan, I think I got some bad news for you. Uh, George ain't going to be here tonight. He's uh, on his way to Vegas. And he's like, oh, God, no. So we walk backstage. I go with him. He's going to uh, talk to the band. The Jones boys are all sitting there in their matching powder blue suits. And he says, uh, boys, look at uh, this is Dave from CBS Records. He's got some news to tell you. I said, yeah, look at that. Uh, George isn't going to be here. He's, uh, you know, changed flight plans. He's going to Vegas. They said, no, oh, well, that's no problem. We'll go on anyways. Stan mm. Grazina sort of looked at me and I'm like, well, I don't know. It's your club. So they, uh, on stage they go, the lights go down, they all pick up their instruments and they start vamping, playing, you know, some instrumental or whatever it was. I can't remember what it was. It doesn't matter. It was an intro to one of George's big hits. Yeah. And uh, I forget the guy's name. Kenny, I think, was the bass player. He could do George spot on, as could oh, wow. Johnny Paycheck, a previous bass player. George always made sure he had a bass player or somebody in the band that could comp his vocals if he wasn't on that night. <laughs> cool. So anyways, this Kenny guy, he steps up and the, you know, the band sort of boogieing along behind me. He says, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's great to be here in Vancouver. Uh, you know, we got a whole night of great music for you. Uh, we're the Jones boys. One problem. There's one Jones boy ain't here tonight. That's George. But here we go. And they just launched into some music and people were just sitting there in the club going, what'd they just say? Well, <laughs> uh, eventually, you know, after about, you know, 10, 15 minutes, they realized George wasn't there, but I don't really recall. There probably were a few people that went out and, uh, and asked for refunds, but generally speaking, I mean, the band was red hot and I guess people thought, well, we're here now. We may, yeah. we may as well stay. And what and, are you going to uh, do, right? Then George turned up the next day and, uh, four nights I sat there in, uh, the queen or in the cave supper club and watched George just spot on. Yeah, cool. So for those across Canada that may not know, the cave was an extremely popular, very famous landmark in Vancouver for a number of years. I don't know when it closed, but uh, back then it was a big deal because they brought in big artists from the States. Oh, everybody played there, the Supremes and everything. And uh, for those that have never been there or don't know the history of it, it was a nightclub in Vancouver, but it it looked like the inside of a cave. It had stalactites hanging down from the ceiling. It was kind of campy, but in the day, it was it was like one of the great showrooms on the West Coast of North America. Everybody yeah. played there. Sammy Davis Jr., Mitzi Gaynor, the Supremes. Anyway, so the first time, if I was to go back and start, where did my odyssey of music, when did I become smitten with the whole thing, even though I had no intentions of, you know, I was five or six or seven years old, whatever I was when my father took me there. We went in and it was the middle of the afternoon on a Saturday and it was, the place was kind of dark and eerie. And you know, I was just like, well, this is kind of very weird. <laughs> Anyways, we went upstairs and my dad knocked on the dressing room door and the door opened and there was a man, never seen anything like it. I just, I remember standing there in awe and looking at this guy thinking, man, there's nobody that lives near my house that looks like this guy. Well, it was Johnny Cash. Oh, wow. And it had such a profound effect on me. I just, I knew there was something, I I didn't know anything about what he did or who he was or anything like that. I was so young, but I just remembered there's something so very different about this man. And I think Hmm. that's kind of carried me through life that, uh, you know, those, those true artists. Yeah. Like the presence he had or the way he carried himself. Exactly. The presence is exactly the aura. Uh, yeah. of the man. And, uh, you know, I just remember, you know, my dad introducing me to him and, you know, he stuck out his hand and, and I, you know, I just reached up and it was like, wow. I, I just, I can remember it so vividly. Neat. Oh, that's cool. That's neat when you have those kind of moments, right. That kind of set you back and go, wow, this is, uh, well, and by then that he, he was a, a huge star by then and U S star. 
So yeah, that was well. He was, you know, that was, you know, in in you know, uh, that was in the early days of of you know the, his meteoric rise to fame. Uh, yeah. You know, he was obviously still playing nightclubs, um, but. Um, yeah. So well, I was going to ask you about that. That's one thing that struck me about the cave. Like, where did they get the budget to bring these people in? I mean, I know the bands are looking for gigs, but I mean, th- th- these are serious acts, right? I think a lot of it had to do with the proximity, that West Coast thing. Uh, and later mm-hmm. in life, working for CBS Records, bands would leave Los Angeles and they'd head north. And yeah. they, they just kept going right past Seattle when they found out that, hey, there's another city you know, another hour and a half up the road. Well, let's yeah. just get on. Let's, oh, it's another country. No problem. Leave the drugs here and we'll just yeah. go. Beautiful so city. it was, uh, you know, and uh, I remember years later, um, you know, talking with Midnight Oil uh, at the height of their popularity. And they were like, the first date they'd done was, did was in Vancouver. And they were like, wow, we should, you know, we should, uh, we should, we really like Canada. We should do some more shows. Like where's the, how far is the next major city? And I'm like, well, it's about uh 12 hour drive through uh, a Rocky mountain pass that quite often is covered by snow eight months of the yes. year. <laughs> they were like, okay. And, and then the funny part about that story is they had just come off of a, a two month tour of Australia. And I said, I've not been to Australia, but I kind of know the geographic lay of the land down there. Like, how do you possibly do a two month tour in Australia? And they said, well, it's, you know, it's pretty easy in those days, you know, they had these big, like Commodore ballrooms that were about five times bigger that held five to 6,000 people. So they would play, let's just say they would play one of these big ballrooms in Langley. And then two nights later or a night later, they'd play in a town like Abbotsford and then Chilliwack and then Hope. So, you know, the the drive between gigs was an hour and a half, not 16 hours. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. The Canadian boys get used to it. I've done that too. Like going from Cranbrook to Rupert, you know? <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, that's it. Yeah. That's funny. So you to- worked with, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about too, you worked with, I guess you guys, you were help you helped sign Barney Bentall when you guys signed them to their record deal. You're involved in that somehow. Well, I used to see Barney and the Legendary Hearts. Uh, you know, they played around town a lot. Sound Pump, uh, in particular, yeah, seems to me is where I saw saw a yeah. lot of their shows. And uh, you know, I remember talking to to Barney one night. Said, you know, what are you guys up to? Like, what you know? He said, well, they were managed at that time by uh, Randy Burswick, who was in the Bruce Allen office. And I said, oh yeah, mm-hmm. interesting that we haven't heard anything. Have you guys recorded anything? And they had a little studio downtown uh, in one of the uh, many buildings owned by the Bentals. And I'll just insert here just to set the record straight for those that don't realize, because people always think that Barney came from a privileged money family because of the Bentall. Well, there was right. three Bentall brothers. Two of them went into land development and Barney's father was a minister. Okay. So he wasn't born with a, a, a silver spoon in his mouth, but through uh, the relationship his uncle, you know, they had lots of properties downtown. So they had a little studio and rehearsal space downtown. I went over, heard some of their stuff. And I said, that's kind of interesting. You know, give me a, you know, half a dozen songs of, of your best songs and, and I'll send it off to our A&R department in Toronto. Anyways, everything was very uh, Toronto centric in those days with the record companies. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Pretty hard for West Coast bands to get signed. So anyways, I, I just kept hammering away at Toronto and they were like, yeah, no, we... I said, well, look at next time one of the, you know, the A&R guys coming out, let me know. And I'll, you know, we'll try to set it up so that he can, like the live show is incredible. And, you know, people 
often would refer to, you know, compare Barney to, you know, almost a Bruce Springsteen type of performer. Like, I mean, he left it all on the stage. So anyways, you know, it it, it kind of went, things went on and on. And and Terry Mulligan used to have a show, Much Music, that was called Much West, which I think was a half hour or an hour. And he played just videos of the local bands. Sitting watching watching the show one night and uh, on came the video for Something to Live For, the first video that they had shot, independent video. And I was like, Oh, come on. Now, why have, why have we not signed these guys? And I just, you know, got on the phone Monday morning, phoned Toronto, and I uh, I just kept hammering away at him. And I phoned Barney and I said, you know, I, like, is there anything happening? And he said, well, funny you should call because I'm going to Toronto next week. I want to go and talk to a bunch of the major record labels and I want to go and look for management in Toronto. So I said, okay, look, I'm going to set up an appointment for you uh, at CBS Records and, uh, at, you know, I'll get you through the door. You got to do the rest. So I set up the appointment with uh, Jeff Burns, who was our A&R director at that time. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but I do know that Barney phoned me from the lobby of CBS in Toronto. I was at my office in Vancouver. He said, "Uh, Dave, I'm here in Toronto and Jeff Burns isn't here. I was like, oh no. Okay. I said, look, just hang on a minute. Just sit there in the lobby. I'll phone you right back. So I phoned and there was a a secondary person in A&R, a gentleman named David Bendeth. So I said, got David Bendeth on the phone. I said, look, you got to help me on this one. Here's what's happening. Gave him, you know, the Coles Notes version of who Barney was and why he was out in the lobby. So he said, okay, I'll take care of it. I'll take the meeting. He said, I I don't know what I can do, Dave, but we can't leave the guy sitting there. So... He took uh, Barney in, listened to some of the music and, you know, said, explained to the situation. Sorry, Jeff's not here, but I just don't know what else to tell you other than, you know, I can say that I met with you and, and um, are you seeing anybody else in Toronto? And Barney said, well, actually, I've got a, a meeting with some of the other labels, but while I'm here, I'm hoping to be able to try to talk to some management. And David Bendeth said, well, have you got an appointment with Bernie Finkelstein? He runs True North Records, manages Bruce Coburn and... Yeah. Uh, Barney was like, oh, wow, incredible. Like I said, I love Bruce Coburn. I, you know, he's one of my favorite artists. Like, wow, to be able to meet Bernie Finkelstein, wouldn't that be a thrill? So Bendeth picked up the phone, made the call, said, hi, Bernie, I'm sitting here with a guy named Barney Bentall. He says, uh, you know, he's in from the West Coast. He's looking for management. Um, you know, I can't tell you that we're we're going to sign him, but at least he's, he's in my office. And would you at all take a meeting with him? Bernie was like, yeah, sure. Tell him to come on down. Well, sort of the rest was history. He went hmm. down and met Bernie. Bernie listened to some of the music, said, you know what? I like what I hear. I want to manage you. And uh, so then he basically got back in touch with CBS Rex and said, look, I'm going to sign this guy. Um, I want you to release the record. And oh. that is uh, how the story came go. to be that Barney ended up on CBS. Isn't that interesting? Well, that's neat. And it must have felt good for you to be part of it too, especially from a from a guy from the West Coast. Yeah, it did. I mean, you know, a killer band, great band. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know we did a gig with them in Nanaimo, I think probably 89. They came in over top of us. We were doing a, a show over there at a place called Rascals. Cause I mean, they, they, those guys paid their dues, right? I know yeah. for a fact, they went back and forth across Canada. I did some recording with Colin Nairn about 20 years ago too. And he said they, they did everything that they needed to do. They were really the road, road warriors, you know, so they, they paid their dues. Well, and they had a little deal with A and M Records. Was it Brandon Wolf? Uh, that was the band right before uh, they the became the Legendary Hearts. Yeah. So yeah. I think they released an EP on A and M Records. Yeah. There you go. Oh, very cool. 
And then you got to, in your dossier here, it says you got to work with The Clash on their first North American tour at the Commodore. How, how did that come about? <laughs> well, it, it basically just, uh, I had nothing to do with it other than the fact that I got a, a call from head office and said, look, we just received word from England that uh, The Clash uh, is going to arrive in Vancouver on Sunday morning and would like you to go out and, and meet them at the airport and welcome to Canada and blah, okay. blah, blah. So I said, yeah, okay. Nope. I mean, I, I was a huge Clash fan, uh, yeah. but they had... They'd not ever played in North America. The Commodore Ballroom was going to be their first show. So diligently, I trudged out to the Vancouver airport. It was probably about six or seven o'clock on a Sunday morning. And David, uh, I forget his last name. He was the, uh, David Preer, maybe. He and what up, year would this have been? This would have been, so 1979, 80? Okay, yeah. Somewhere in there. Uh, yeah. So David Preer from Periscope Concert Productions, who were doing the show, him and I were at the airport. It's like nobody there at five o'clock on a Sunday morning or whatever. And so we're in, we're waiting in the customs area. We've been able to go in because David's got all the paperwork to admit these guys into the country. Well, we're sitting there and we get word that the, the flight from London has arrived. And also that there's a, a private Learjet that they're trying to figure out how to get those people through customs. So if you can imagine this, we're sitting in a, a waiting area with Andy Williams and with two women who were in fur coats and tiaras that had far too much to drink. I have no <laughs> idea. I had no idea where they were going. So picture that and then throw the members of the clash who have been drinking for 16 hours on their flight from London, England. Oh, gee. Uh, Mick Jones has actually got a Samsonite, a hard shelled Samsonite brief or uh, suitcase that he's mounted like four six-inch speakers, and somehow he's got some kind of battery pack in there. <laughs> and there's this blitzkrieg music, and I was just I was going like, this is the most bizarre situation I think I've ever found myself in. That's funny. And, uh, you know, they were here for a couple of days. Uh, Tom Harrison uh, got a hold of Tom. I was like, what do you do with these guys for a couple of days? So Tom says, well, they probably like soccer. I said, yeah, they probably do. They're from England. And uh, so Tom set up, uh, got a bunch of the local musicians, and we went up to a park uh, up on 4th Avenue and uh, played soccer most of the afternoon. They went to Bimini's uh, for drinks. They were very down to earth. Um, Mick Jones and Strummer, a little bit aloof, uh, but Topper Heaton and Simonon were just, just the... They were like teddy bears. They they weren't yeah. sort of like the you know, and and not that that Jones and Strummer were uh, ignorant or spitting or you know, yeah. uh, safety pins through their faces, but they were just a little more hardcore. And uh, right. that night they hit the stage at the Commodore Ballroom. I think it was the night Drew Burns managed the place at that time. I think that was the night where they finally said, Drew, we're going to cap this place because if you could get to the top of the stairs. They let you in. Like I've never yeah. been in the Commodore Ballroom. I've been in there hundreds of times before. It was shoulder to shoulder. Everybody wow. that I knew in the music industry was there. Uh, people that I knew that they were labeled sort of as punk rock, but I guess it was accessible punk rock. Well, I'll yeah. tell you, Dan, they hit the stage and I had at that point in my life seen hundreds of bands and I just was absolutely jaw dropping yeah. in awe. What was it? What was it about them? Just the energy, the the presence, the all of the, all of the above. Yeah. I I remember the classic saying of uh, uh, the article that was first written by Dave Marsh when he was a fan, and not the manager of Bruce Springsteen. It was in the old old Rolling Stone. It was just a small ad, and it said, "Last night I saw the future of rock and roll, and its name is Bruce Springsteen." Hmm. 
So after, the, I mean, we partied all night long after the Commodore Ballroom. And I went back to the office and we had a telex, a, yep, a telex that. machine, which sat underneath this old faded piece of plastic. Never, nobody ever used it. But I looked at it and I went, what if this thing works? So I turned it on and I realized it was just a giant typewriter. And I looked in the, in the um, directory book that was attached to it. Well, there was CBS Records, London, England. And I remember sending Ovi Overfeld or whatever. He was the head of uh, CBS Records in Europe or uh, England at the very least. And I remember sending him a telex. I probably have a copy of it somewhere. And it said, you know, to paraphrase the great Dave Marsh, uh, last night's Commodore show of The Clash, I saw the future of rock and roll. Because yeah. I really did think these guys are going to change the whole thing. They, yeah. And I think, I think they kind of shot themselves in the foot. I think they could have been so huge. Um, but they didn't have good management. Uh, and it was... It, it, it just kept, it would pick up speed and then the track, the train would just come off the tracks. Uh, the body of work that they left behind, you know, Sandinista, there's so many great albums, um, yeah. which again, that wasn't the problem. The problem was the business aspect, the touring. Yeah. I mean, they basically went on tour and proceeded to piss off every single label rep and regional manager of CBS records that they could. Uh, and yeah. I just thought, I, you know, I remember working with them on the second or third time. I, and I just, I remember sitting down with them and saying, look, you know, I want to give you some advice and, it, and two bucks will get you a bus ride. But you guys got it. You don't have to kiss ass, but Jesus, don't, don't yeah. destroy relationships. We've got a lot of records. I don't have to work a Clash record and neither does anybody else. Yeah. A smaller record label, maybe so. We don't need yeah. you. You yeah. need us. Yeah. And I don't mean, it didn't mean that egotistical. I just kind of tried to see if I could, you know, pound some sense into their their heads. Well, but. and that's the rub about the, the the record business, especially. But a lot of these bands that have that sort of presence and that and that buzz about them, they have this self destructive sort of tendency about them too, wouldn't you think? Where they they kind oh, of train I think, wreck. I, I think so, and they I think they kind of felt that they had to carry that anti establishment uh, mm. banner and fly it free. Um, and I didn't, I did as, a, as a, you don't have to be phony about any of this, but if you don't have anybody that's taking care of your business, as simple yeah. as that. Yeah. Not that I can see. I mean, they changed managers with great frequency. They have their tour manager or Caroline Christie kind of yeah. guided their career for a time. And she was a, a pop reviewer from London, England that was going out with Paul Simon on the bass player. So okay, it was sad to see. Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess, and 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 that's the thing about the self-destructive part of it. But some of these guys lived in an alternate universe. The devil may care. You can drink all day. You can do whatever you want. You can be the rebel and the bad boy. But at some point, when you sit down with someone like yourself, it's like, well, it is a business, guys. Like, you, at some point, you got to kind of clear your head, and we got to talk about this. Yeah, and I don't think I never got the impression in any of the times that I was around them that drugs or alcohol was a problem. Even though Topper mm -hmm. Hayden, the drummer of the day eventually left the group because of heroin use. Um, hmm. and, and I think that was a decision made by the rest of the group. They felt that he was, he was slowing them down or whatever. Yeah. So as a result of that, huh. but it was, that wasn't, that was never their problem. I think they just, they kind of felt they had to be punks. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that scene, you know, kind of came and went too, right. It was a little bit of the anti-establishment thing gone, gone crazy. 
I mean, I, I read, uh, Chrissy Hines book and she was right there with Johnny Rotten and, and Sid Vicious and all those guys when they came up and it's pretty brutal. Like some of the stories she tells about just how seriously anti-established pulling knives and gobbling on each other and just yeah. really weird. Ugh, just, <laughs> it's quite disgusting, but anyways, well, cool. Well, that, that was good that you got to take part of that. So, so then you said that CBS, that, that gig went away and then you got into producing videos and, and working for Bumstead Productions. How did that happen? Well, when I mentioned that the whole industry changed when Sony yes. uh, took over and, and hey, it was their bat, their ball and their park. They can do business however they wanted. They were more interested in selling the hardware, meaning the systems that played music as mm. opposed to the, the software, which was in those days, cassettes and CDs and, and record albums and that. Yeah. So the industry very much changed. And I, you know, I can remember there was, we used to, you know, uh, you know, when I think back of the days, Billboard magazine that used to be the sort of the Bible of the music industry, CBS Records would, you know, almost every issue had, you know, three or four pages and, you know, congratulating Cheap Trick on Triple Platinum, which was 300,000. Boston might have been 400,000. Meatloaf, yeah. 100,000. Like we were just, we were handing out gold and platinum records, you know, like they were, hand, yeah. like they were smarties. <laughs> And then along came, I don't know whether it was probably Hootie and the Blowfish, Alanis Morissette. There was a period of time there where all of a sudden records started. And again, I think it was just because of the age thing, people moving through the, the cycle. Now these records were selling 400,000, 500,000, 600,000, 700, oh my God, wow. a million copies on one record. Who would have ever thought of that? Yeah. So as a result of that, I saw the record industry shift and they went, oh, hang on a minute here. Instead of having 18 acts that sell a million, let's just have one album that'll sell 18 million. Hmm. Seems to be a lot less work, boys. So yeah. they started to pour the money. As soon as a record started to move, they would pour a ton of money into that artist and try to drive it through the roof. Well, it was, not, it was okay. an unrealistic expectation that every record would sell a million. But I sort of likened it to throwing a bunch of seeds out in your backyard. And as soon as the first one started to sprout, you watered them, you gave them fertilizer at the detriment right. of all the other seeds. And I think yeah. that's, that's what's, that was, that was the point where I kind of, as I say, rather idealistically decided, you know what, this is not the industry that I really loved. I, as I said earlier, we had a lot of great artists, just none of them that I wanted to listen to. So yeah. I thought, okay, so I've got a good understanding of radio. I've got a, a I think a good understanding of the record industry. I've had the opportunity to work with uh, a lot of great management firms, but that's one area that I think I'd like to to kind of round out my resume with. So at that point in time, Bruce Allen, of course, who was legendary in this in the industry, and Bruce yeah. and I in those days were quite good friends. We played baseball together on the on the Warriors baseball team for a number nice. of years. Yeah, and but I couldn't. Our personalities, I I could see, were were so different, and and Bruce's style wasn't something that I could relate to, to be very honest. Yeah. So the only other world-class manager in Vancouver in those days was a gentleman named Larry Wanagas, who had taken mm. a young girl from Consort, Alberta, Catherine Don Lang, Katie Lang, from yeah. nowhere to the top of the world. So I set up an yeah. appointment. I'd never met the man because he kept a very low profile in Vancouver. Very few people, uh, you know, I think even realized that Katie's management and her her launch to fame came from Vancouver. So anyways, I went and had a, a meeting with Wanagas and we got to talk and hit it off very well. And he said, this is rather fortuitous. You'd come at this point in time. 
because I'm just about to relaunch my uh, old record label, Bumstead Records, which is where Colin James and Katie Lang's first records and The Pursuit of Happiness all okay. came out on the Bumstead label. Yeah, nice. So um, anyways, uh, he said, you know, I'm looking for a national promotion director. I got a distribution deal with uh, Warner Brothers and uh, would you like to work? And I'm like, I'll, I'll start tomorrow. Yeah. So that uh, that started another uh, another chapter in my uh, long and winding road, and it was a good run. Um, Larry and I well, cool. still have a good a good relationship. Um, and whilst trying to work the Bumstead record label, uh, Larry came to the office one day. He said, "Do you know who Billy Cowsill is?" I said, "Yeah, I've seen him a number of times around town playing in the bars and that." Why? He said, "Well, he said I got him signed to a publishing deal, and I've taken him to Nashville a couple of times, but." Here, listen to this stuff and see what you think. So I remember listening to it and I thought, well, it's pretty cool. It was a very rough demo. There was a little studio in the back of Bumstead Records down by Granville Island where our office was. And Billy had come in and recorded some demos. And so I ended up meeting Billy and went out and saw a couple of his shows. But there was something something lacking. Um, couldn't really put my finger on it because he was so incredibly talented. It was amazing. Yeah. And... About a month after that, we were sort of wrestling what to do with Billy. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Jeffrey Hatcher came into the office, and I had worked with Jeffrey uh, at CBS Records. He had a, a record. He was out of Winnipeg, and he had a band called Jeffrey Hatcher and the Big Beat. So uh, he came in, and he had a finished record, and he wanted Larry to release it on Bumstead. So we listened to it, spent a couple of days with it, and I, Larry and I both kind of came to the conclusion it was just not something that was going to fit in anywhere in the market. It was kind of a Kind of a country rock, more rock, less country. It was, it was rockabilly hard to, kind of. Uh, not even that. It was just. No? It just sounded kind of dated, to be very honest. Okay. It was yeah. good music, no doubt yeah. about that. But it just the, the industry had changed so much. So, anyways, Larry said, um, "You know, uh, don't really see this as a as a fit for the. I mean, it was a very small label." Um, and Jeff says, well, if you, if you hear of anybody around town, that's, uh, you know, looking for a guitar player, I'm, I've moved to Vancouver and I'm looking for work. Well, as it turned out two days before that, Danny Cassavant, who was, uh, Billy's guitar player yeah, left to him. go play with Raffi. I'm sure you do. Yeah. So Danny had left to go play with Raffi and, and Larry says, well, uh, have you ever heard of a guy named Billy Cowso? And Jeffrey says, well, yeah, his reputation kind of precedes him to be very honest. And yeah. he says, well, He's looking for a guitar player. We, you know, we can, uh, you know, put you two together if that's uh, something that you might be interested in. And Jeffrey goes, well, worth a shot. I got to pay the rent in that. And uh, so that's kind of how the the formation of the Blue Shadows uh, right. later came go. to be. Yeah. Well, very cool. That's a neat story. That's uh, it's it's funny how those connections are made by happenstance quite often, right? You just people in the industry, and and Billy Cowsell obviously had a. a a great reputation and and people liked him, but he was always a bit of an anomaly. Like he came out of the cow sales, I guess he was in the family band. Right. And then yeah, he ended he sure up in, was. in Vancouver. Um, cause, cause the cow sales was from back East. Is, is that not right? Um, yeah. Um, and then he came out here. I think he ended up on the West coast. I'm not sure how, but, uh, he had a great reputation out here, but, but a bit of an anomaly, as you say. Like well, they were, slot the, him in. the family band was based out of Newport, Rhode Island. And okay. then of course, when they became very big and popular, they moved to the West coast, uh, moved to California. Hmm. Yeah. And that was kind cool. of when Billy not only got kicked out of the band, but kicked out of the family at the same time, because he yeah, was smoking were. pot with Waddy Wattel, according to his dad. 
Because <laughs> okay. his dad actually managed Waddy Wattell's band, brought him out from Providence, Rhode Island, and that ah. was going to be the next act that he was going to make big because Bud Cowsell managed the uh, Cowsells. And the funny, interesting story about that one, I'll just take a quick moment here. Yeah. You know, they're they're on tour, the Cowsells, a big deal. Uh, and they put out a couple of albums. I think they've gone gold or platinum. Been on the Ed Sullivan Show two or three times. So they're in Los Angeles and... Um, Rob Reiner's dad, Carl Reiner, Carl had, a sh- had a cable show in Los Angeles called Bizarre. Hmm. And that that's exactly what the television show was, is it was bizarre. <laughs> Anything that he could <laughs> think of. So America's first family of pop music, as the Cowsills were known then, squeaky clean. Carl Reiner decided, how about if you guys come on the show, I'm going to put you in fright wigs and uh, dress you up in, in, in clothes made out of black garbage bags and put tape all over them. And you're going to sing the song from the movie Hair. And they were like, really? Well, they decided that they would do it, but they needed a track. They needed to, to, to be able to, they couldn't sing live. So they, they had to record. They went into the garage of their home and they recorded a version of Hair so that they could take it to the television mm-hmm. station and they could lip sync to it. Not sure exactly how that worked. It was something to do with the AF of M. Anyway, so they've got this reel to reel of them singing Hair. It's on the TV show. It's a cable show. Nobody gives a rat's ass. I mean, maybe yeah. a few people saw it. I don't even know that uh, there was ever any footage surfaced. I don't know whether I ever saw the footage. Anyways, the band goes back out on tour, and they're in Chicago, and WLU, WLS, the big rock station in Chicago, they're in doing an interview. They got a show in Chicago that night, and the disc jockey said, so what have you guys been up to? Oh, well, we, uh, you know, we're working on the new record and blah, 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 and we just did a, a, a show, you know, a television show out in Los Angeles with, you know, Carl Reiner. And we, you know, sang a song or whatever. And Bud Cowsill, dad, in his briefcase, had the reel-to-reel of hair. Oh. So he says to the disc jockey at WLS, one of the biggest, most powerful radio stations in North America at the time, hey, how would you like to play? Can we give you a world exclusive of the Cowsill singing hair? <laughs> Everybody has a good chuckle and a laugh, but the guy takes the reel-to-reel. The you know you remember the old seven-inch reel-to-reels. Oh yeah, absolutely. Loads it up on the on the Studer uh, machine in the control room, and plays the Cowsills' hair. Well, the rest was history. The phones went up. The everything lit up, and that their biggest hit ever, which I think Rolling Stone is. It's in it's in the top one hundred songs of all time. Might even be in the top (laughs) thirty. But it came out quite as an accident. Wow, isn't that funny? What a great story! I got That's a million funny. of them, Dan. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> did you ever did you ever tour with any of the bands, or do promotional tours, or any international travel? Uh, well, when I went to work with Wanagas at Bumstead, um, I thought, you know what? If I'm going to tell people what to do, I should know what they do. So right. I uh, tour managed uh, an artist that uh, we had on Bumstead. Uh, Glenn Stace, uh, to Halifax and back and then did the okay. same thing with the blue shadows. So okay. I've seen every square inch of this country. Well, at least oh, yeah. coast to coast. Yeah. Well, good for you for going out there and getting on the road too. Cause that, that is an alternate universe. That's not one that I liked very much. Just be, you know, going from town to town and stuff. I just, it wasn't a lifestyle thing for me, but it, it is like an alternate reality out there sometimes. I often thought, you know, every music executive in Canada, after I made that first trip from Winnipeg around the top of the lakehead to Toronto, yeah, I thought, you know what, if every music executive in Canada got in a van with seven stinky guys and made that trip, 
did understand a little bit more about how what it takes to break a record in Canada. There you go. Yeah, and the travel, and that's what Barney Bantall and and Colin Nairn talked about too, right? Because they did it many, many times. So. So I wanted to ask you about the video stuff too. Like, you know, it's funny because I had, I've had Erica M on my podcast and Christopher Ward as well. And I asked them, you know, what happened to videos? Like I thought when the eighties hit and much music and MTV and that, I thought videos were going to be the staple of the industry for in perpetuity. And it lasted about maybe 10 years plus, And then it kind of waned. What do you, what do you think happened there? It burnt itself out. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. The art form just became so saturated and that, that period of time, I mean, not that many years back, I remember seeing something. There's still David uh, Farrell out of Toronto still has uh, FYI Music News, and he, of course, used to have the trade paper called The Record. So back in the days, uh, you know, we would sell out of a and one location of A&B Sound on Seymour Street. We would sell over the course of a month. We would sell, you know, fifty not only 50,000 copies of the album, we would sell 50,000 copies of the cassette. So now I look at, you know, while there was still product being sold in Canada, a number one song in Canada was moving like 10,000 units uh, Mm -hmm. in in something other than a digital form. Now I guess they just track how many plays or how many downloads or whatever it was. But it it was that period of the 80s. It was a period of excess. And again, it was just, Luxac, that huge population uh, group that I referred to earlier on, was now moving through that cycle. I mean, yeah. you know, as they say, video killed the radio star. But then towards the end of the 80s and end of the 90s, we were now getting the majority of that age group was now settling down, getting married, having kids, saving their money yeah. for a, a Whistler a condo or whatever. So the priorities changed. Yeah, um, fair enough. And I think, you know, I think that, and it was, it was the period of excess in the record industry as well. Well, yes, true. There was a lot of money being splashed around. And then some of the videos were just straight up weird. Like some of the concept videos and, and I mean, they were expensive, but they were weird. Some of them. Well, the, when I first started at CBS in 78, I can remember we had this monstrous big TV kind of a unit that had a player thing in the bottom of it. And we were supposed to take it around to record stores and radio stations. It was like the thing weighed about 80 pounds, <laughs> but the first videos were, uh, from the European acts because they didn't have, uh, access to commercial radio. So uh-huh. video was a much bigger thing in Europe. And even when MTV, uh, went on the air initially, a lot of the videos they played were what they had on hand. Uh, mm. and a lot of it was European acts. Um, and quickly, you know, Loverboy being a perfect example, uh, you know, they early in their career went to New York and shot about four videos for that first album, nice. uh, you know, Cheap, Fast and Cool. And, uh, yeah. you know, uh, the MTV was like begging the record labels, like, please give us anything. Yeah. So as soon as they could get their hands on anything, they just played the living hell out of it. And, the, and MTV was so new and so popular and subsequently later uh, much music. Record companies were having a heyday and and they were selling, you know, people, they heard about some of the astronomical budgets, but given the fact that, that, you know, we couldn't press and ship their product fast enough, it was, it was just excess and it was waste, but yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, I mean, any major song that you were going to promote had to have a video with it, but some of those videos were enormously expensive. And then the recoupable money off the videos was very minimal, right? Like the business model didn't really make a lot of sense either. 
No, but funny you mentioned the dreaded word recoupable, um, because to a lot of artists, it was the dreaded word. They thought the record company was spending money because we were nice people. Yeah. They didn't realize we were going to be the first people to get paid back. So yes. if we spent three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 for the video and sent limousines to pick you up everywhere you went, it was all going against uh, the, the debit and credit of your bank account. Yes, there you go. And that became a reality for some of them because some of the artists that you would consider successful ended up with really broke or worse. Yeah, well, a lot of, of a lot of that wasn't so much the record company. A lot of those those horror stories came about management that was just draining right. the bank accounts while they weren't looking. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there's lots of those stories too. Like the, the famous ones like Billy Joel and and um uh, who was the famous Canadian uh famous blue raincoat um Leonard, wrote, Cohen. Hallelujah. Leonard Cohen, right? Mm -hmm. His story was tragic, right? If you read yeah. that, yeah. his manager absconded with, with all his money, basically. Yeah, it happens. It, it, it happens a lot. And a lot of time, a lot of the ones you never hear of because the artist out of embarrassment doesn't want mm. that information out. There you go. They, they, yeah. they just, you know, it, it's happened way more than, than you yeah. could ever imagine really. Yeah. So a couple more things I just wanted to ask you about. So uh, you're friends with Ray McGuire. You've known him for years and Trooper just got inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. And I'm a huge Trooper fan. I've known, I don't know Ray very well, but I've known Smitty for many years. And of course, Donnie and Tommy and all those guys I've known mm -hmm. for, for many years. So what's your whole take on that? You must've been happy. Oh, I was ecstatic. I, it, they should have been in there a long time ago, oh, of course. to be very yes. honest. You know, 100%. I, I've raised as much hell as I possibly could to, uh, try to wake up the Karis board. Um, you know, uh, again, that board, I don't want to get into the mud, but the, the, it was, it was, it, it was, it was just a flat out crime, uh, that they yeah. were inducting bands that, that never had picked up their first guitar when Trooper was filling ice arenas from coast to coast. hundred percent. You yeah. know, uh, so it was, it was long overdue. Um, and you know, uh, as classy as they've always been to take all the members to the, to the ceremony in Calgary. Yes. Yeah. Um, it just shows you the type of guys that Smitty and, and, uh, Ray are, um, mm. and the thing about them, you know, I remember talking to Ray one time and they had played somewhere way down South of Moose Jaw. It might've been down near where my dad was born in Wood Mountain or Strath Allen or something. And it was just, it was, it, it was out in a field and it just, it had rained and it was just this giant muck festival. I saw some pictures where they had like laid planks so the band could actually get to this makeshift stage. But Ray said it was so incredible because, you know, as, as dusk started to, to, uh, uh, you know, take over the, the lighting of, uh, the place of the, where the festival or the concert was going to be, Ray said he remembers standing backstage or side stage and, you know, that famous scene in uh, field of dreams where you just see a long line of car lights coming over mm. the hill. And he said, you know, that was exactly, uh, exactly what it reminded him of and, and I think that kind of always made me think about, you know, uh, the Rolling Stones were not coming to Lethbridge, Alberta, but hot damn Trooper was. Yeah, there you go. They played every single town in this great <sighs> dominion and sang about it. And when they turned up, uh, they gave it all. I mean, I, I, I've never seen Trooper do anything other than just play the gig like it was going to be their last gig ever. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that, that built up their popularity. They had great great songs uh, somebody recently just posted Mick Delavy posted a sound or a board mix of them I think in 1975 at the Royal yes. Towers it was the last at night the Zodiac they, yeah the That's last right. night that they were Applejack and I, I listened did, to I it listened I, that, yeah. uh, sorry I did listen I listened, to that that was yeah 
you know, and, and to hear them, you know, uh, playing songs that, you know, later would, would go onto their records. Uh, and, uh, you know, they were just, you know, they were playing the cover songs, but, you know, they'd just play in, you know, that I sent Ray a, t- a message yesterday because I heard a song that I, I don't ever remember hearing them play in the bar. It was called Steady Eddie or whatever. And I thought, wow, that's a great <laughs> song. That should have been on one of the albums. So, yeah. Yeah, they were just, you know, they were the nicest bunch of guys uh, and, and they just, they worked so damn hard. And I think, you know, that was, you know, back to Billy Cowso, sometimes the Blue Shadows would be on tour and, you know, maybe be a Tuesday or a Wednesday night and a makeup gig to try to get through to the money on the weekend. And, you know, somebody in the band would say, and I won't, don't have to single them out, but they'd just say, oh, you know, shit, there's only, you know, 15, 70, 15, 20 people here tonight. And I remember Billy would look and say, yeah. And they deserve as great a show as if there were 2,000. Because no. just, just because there's not 2,000 out there tonight, we those 20 people, they paid their money, they turned up, and they get a full show. And yeah. uh, I Absolutely. think Trooper inadvertently lived by that credo because, man, they every single show they did, uh, and Ray was one of the great front men uh, in Canadian rock and roll. Yeah. Um, I can't say enough good things about. Yeah, good. Well, I, I knew you guys are friends, and you've known them for many decades, probably since the mid seventies. I would think since. Uh, Funny enough, no, I never no. met Ray till many, many years oh, okay. later. My wife, uh, who used to work in Bruce Allen's office, uh, and oh. she ended up doing accounting for Loverboy, and uh, she also used to do Smitty and Ray stuff. But I never ever oh, nice. met them until. We moved back to uh, White Rock after uh, a decade in Vancouver. And oh, okay. That makes sense. I had uh, talked the, the now newspaper into doing a, a Georgia Strait type entertainment newspaper. So I wanted to do an interview. So I called up Ray and uh, he came over to my house in White Rock. And that nice. was the first time I met him. So probably I'm, I'm thinking that was probably early 2000s. That was okay. in, nice. even though, even though, I mean, we had been, you know, a half a degree of separation for, yes, for of course. decades. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very cool. And then, and then speaking of that, that, uh, shifts right into, so you, you started the newspaper, the white rock sun, which you still have on uh, line. That's, it's still viable. So that was the first independent online newspaper. And you, you started that. When did you do that? Uh, in June coming up in June, it will be 15 years. Wow. Very nice. So what so, prompted that? Well, what prompted that was, was, was watching, uh, what an impact digital had, first of all, in the music industry. Yes. And then later on, um, I had gone to the now newspaper, uh, had a buddy that worked there and we were in, in the building one day and took me down and introduced me to the publisher. And I said, you know, you guys should do, you know, what always bothers me is that, you know, every time an act is, is, is going to, uh, release a record in Canada, it's always like, well, when's it coming out in America? It's like, what the hell difference does that make? Mm, yeah. You know, nobody buy it, bought Loverboy records to support the Canadian music industry or the Trooper records. They bought them because they liked the song. So I got, yeah. I would get kind of animated about that. I said, you know, there's a whole star making machinery in Quebec. Celine Dion was selling platinum and nobody in English speaking Canada knew because they have a star system. Why don't we have that in Canada? So I talked the now newspaper into uh, letting me write a, a weekly column focusing on Canadian music, uh, even though it was called Canada Calling. I didn't want to wrap it in a in a Canadian flag. And people would say, well, then what do you call it? Canada Calling. I'm not really too sure. Yeah. But the fact is, is that, you know, so I tried to, so for years I, I used to write this weekly column 
uh, for the now newspaper, uh, you know, about artists that were, you know, yeah. uh, generally, you know, taking into consideration who the audience, who's reading the now newspaper. They're not into alt music, but I don't know, the Jan Ardens, the Troopers, the Lover Boys, you know, mainly focusing on, well, totally focusing on Canadian artists and where and when possible, uh, local uh, you know, there was a young kid, uh, Danny Svensson, the rock and roll kid. I remember writing an article about him hmm. when he was like very, very young. Uh, and he's, you know, gone on some pretty interesting things. But so that, uh, you know, that I saw when I was doing that, I started to see, and I had been reading uh, newspapers online, just mainly for sports stuff. I'd read the New York Post or whatever to read stories on the Yankees. And sometimes I'd read the Chicago Tribune. So right. I knew all these newspapers had uh, a presence online, but they were, they were not promoting the fact. Okay. Well, monetarily, yeah. they would rather you not read their newspaper online because the printed copy was far more beneficial monetarily to them. So I got you. Yeah. So I saw again, what digital was doing to, uh, was going to do to, uh, the publishing industry. And I started to, well, at the now I started to see a lot of the stats and figures, which just confirmed what I believed, uh, you know, going back to the days of my father's radio station in Langley, people had a voracious appetite for local news. You know, um, where was that fire truck going that went by my house last night? Was somebody hurt in that accident on the Fraser Highway I passed on the way home? So those kind of things. I know people had a voracious appetite for that. And I thought, you know what, given my experience, my radio experience and that, I could probably, by that time I had moved back to White Rock. I thought, you know, I'm going to take a shot and uh, have an online newspaper. I think I can do that. And after I started it, the response was very strong. And I thought, okay, well, I should maybe ask backwards as I quite often do, should maybe check and find out what other independent online newspapers are doing. Well, there were none and there still are none. All the, all the newspapers, they do have a presence online and now they're trying to pump some air into a tire that's going flat faster than we can talk because people, people are, when was the last time you picked up a newspaper? Uh, it's yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. I mean, if you find one on the ferry or something, you might read it, but you know, and, and I mean, nowadays, you know, this Saturday, go into a grocery store and find out what a Globe and Mail costs. I was in, you know, and if I'm giving them, it's probably five years ago at the local store. It was a rainy Sunday afternoon. I was picking up some milk and I thought, I'm going to pick up a, I'll pick up a Globe and Tail and just Globe and Mail because I used to like reading newspapers and yeah. put it on the counter and the guy behind the counter said, that'd be two seventy five. And I'm looking around like, oh, who are you talking to? Wow. And he looked at me with this kind of glazed look and I'm like, you mean this thing's two seventy five? Well, he was like, it gave, sort of gave me that look like, what have you been in prison for a decade, buddy? <laughs> I'm like, you know what? I don't think I'm going to pay that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it, uh, and, and, you know, they lost all the great reporters. Radio has lost, yes. uh, you know, media, yeah. you know, I mean, I was so mad the other night there had been an accident over on Johnson road and a car went into uh, the serpentine Nickelmackle river. I had heard about it and I put a little piece in the, in the white rock sun and found uh, some footage, uh, just a brief little thing on global news that this had happened. So the next night at six o'clock, I thought, I'm going to just check out the news and, and see if anybody was, you know, died. I mean, it's pretty, pretty major accident. So Chris Galis comes on at six o'clock or I, maybe it wasn't even Chris Galis, but it was like tonight on the six o'clock news, bing, bang, we have these uh, stories, uh, tragedy averted that, uh, you know, a car hits the river in, in Serpentine or Nicomachal River in Syria. And I'm thinking, okay, great. 
Huh, we'll be back in a moment. First story, second story. And every time they go to a break, they're like, uh, you know, coming up later uh, or coming up. They may not have even said next, but they left you with the impression that right after these commercials, we're going to get to that Surrey story because we mm. know you an interest. It was the last story they ran in an hour long. Oh, okay. And oh, I was wow. just, I was just like, yeah. so now we're using news stories as lost leaders. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the, that industry has really, really dropped and faded. I, I have no yeah. time for it. It's just crap. So in your paper, the White Rock Sun, you're doing well. You're going to continue with that. You're, yeah, I'm. I'm actually, <clears throat> actually at the point now. It was done as, as, uh, as you know, something that I just had a had a, a passion and a hankering to do. Uh, I'll yeah. start to monetize it. I probably get, you know, in the neighborhood of fifteen hundred to two thousand individual specific readers a day, which for yeah. digital, like talking to even the province newspaper would love to have those numbers. Yeah, for sure. No, that's uh and then you're still involved in White Rock. You're a White Rock city councilor, which is great. You're real popular there. I know that because I'm down there quite a bit. <laughs> so, uh, and then you stayed involved in the music business. Like you helped Rocket Boy Productions. You've been involved in Blue Frog at, at times with the various shows there. And fund, I worked with you, you emceed a fundraiser that we did for the Hospice Society. I've yeah, been, been kind involved. of the go-to guy when it comes to, and, and you know, it's like, I guess the, the classic, uh, line of, you know, I keep trying to get out, but they keep pulling me back in. <laughs> well, and you're, you're on council, but you also have that experience. And so we did the tour to White Rock for you. Actually, yeah. you hired us for that. And then you've got the concerts on the pier. You got Lee Aaron and Colin James coming this summer and stuff. So that's, uh, that's yeah, I don't don't have anything to do with them. Kelly okay. breaks from Blue Frog and Rob uh, Warwick, uh, who you've mentioned, uh, they they book all Through the Rocket talent Boy. for that. So that's going to be you know uh, you know I'm excited about you know uh, seeing uh, Lee on on stage in White Rock, yeah, uh, sure. having made her home in the South Surrey area for so many years, and Colin James full band. I mean, when I saw Colin's name on the roster, I phoned up uh, yep. Kelly or Rob and, and said, like, is he doing a duo or a three piece uh, blues? Right. You want they the said, no, on. he's bringing the full on band. And I was like, yep. wow. Well, I do the, when I do the Bob Seger shows now, I get Johnny Ferrer comes out and plays with me quite right. often now. And he's so great. And he's him and Colin split years ago, but I loved seeing him with Colin too. Cause Johnny's just such a, such a, Oh blast. yeah. Back in the old days, what a band that was with Daryl oh. Mays and Johnny. Oh, yeah. incredible. Band. Excellent. The, the first oh, very band. cool. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. You know, it's funny. I wanted to say I, I, my old manager years ago, he gave me a piece of advice that I've always uh, sort of kept. And he said to me uh, in the music business, Dan, try to surround yourself with people who number one, love music because then they won't treat it just as a commodity. They actually are in the business because they love music. But more importantly, number two, find people in the music business who love musicians, who appreciate the artist. Then you won't be exploited for your craft or as a person. And I thought that was good advice. And, and you're one of those guys, Dave, that, uh, you know, you love music and you, and you love the artists and you're still, even on your Facebook and your social media, you promote artists, you promote shows. You came out to our show a couple of weeks ago and I really appreciated seeing you. I just wanted to let you know that because uh, it means a lot to me. Well, it means a lot to me, Dan, to be able to go and uh, know that, uh, you know, I have no problem shelling out uh, whatever it costs to get in to see any form of band that you play, because I know and I'm not just trying to blow smoke up. Uh, it's going to be well worth the money. And, and that show that you spoke about, recent show over at the Crescent Beach Legion. I mean, wow. I mean, you guys just burned the joint to the ground. Oh, and similar, fun to, night. similar to Trooper, you know, uh, you you lean into it. You step on it hard. You give the people their money's worth. Uh, I mean, you know, how many times have, you know, over the years have I seen bands that, you know, <laughs> Larry Wanagas and I, we would be sitting somewhere and he'd go, 
uh, don't worry, folks, they're coming back. This is <laughs> this is not the you know, the the break yeah. turned into longer than the set. You know, yeah, and when I go. see you play, sometimes I'm looking. I'm thinking, okay, well. I'm going to go get a drink. It must be just about time for the end of the first set, but we're like <laughs> 75 minutes into the first set. <laughs> well, so nobody does that. Uh, so I take my hat off to you uh, and I, I wish you continued health and, and success and just keep laying down that great music out there. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, and so, so the advice I got from my manager, I tried to take that to heart as well. I respect the music and I respect my audience. And I always, that's my approach when I'm there. So I appreciate you, you all being there and all the people that are there respect the music. So I sing and play them, my guts out the best I can. And then I, I respect my audience. So I start on time. Like one thing about our band, we start on time. Like if, if we're supposed to start at eight and we're not playing at eight o'clock, there's going to be a problem. Well, I'm that's another the, anomaly too. You yeah. know, uh, most groups run on musician standard. Time. Oh yeah. yeah it's a, for, for what, you know, you don't know. Well, good. Well, I appreciate all the stuff you shared, Dave. I knew you'd be interesting and and you shared some really cool stuff. So I was really thankful that you were willing to come on the, the podcast and come over and visit me too, which I appreciate. So my pleasure. Many thanks to Dave Chesney for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his incredible life in the music business and, and more. So, and more information is available at whiterocksun.com. Excellent online presence there. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. We also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Harris.